This is Show Up as a Leader, a show from People Forward Network, helping you maximize your positive impact on the world by becoming your best, fully authentic self. So if it's possible to have a state of zen, challenging conversation, and enlightenment wrapped up into one, that's exactly what happened in my conversation with the amazing, thoughtful Brandon Hatton. He is the author of the brand new book just out from Conscious Capitalism Press, Conscious Wealth, and he'll have you rethinking what he means by conscious wealth. It's not like richy rich like many of us think about, and it's fundamentally about shifting from this mindset and this paradigm, if you will, of scarcity and being stressed and instead moving to one of abundance and to purpose and to impact and to unity. And we had such a fabulous conversation and just wait till you hear how he talks about healing our money memory and shifting our relationship with money. You're going to get a ton out of it. So Brandon, I am going to dive right in and I'm going to read some stuff from your book, Conscious Wealth, to kick off our conversation if you're up for it. This will be the first time anyone's read anything in my book to me. Well, (laughs) I am honored. I am honored to be the first. Okay. Give this a shot. So I, I love definitions. I love anchoring conversations on definitions. So you are... Talking about when you're talking to a a group of other people, but I think this is good for the reader as well. You say the purpose of finance is to make us better human beings. It is to allow companies time to develop new drugs for cancer or Alzheimer's. It is to build buildings that allow businesses to grow. It is to improve our lives in ways that eventually allow us to be healthy, happy human beings. Otherwise, why waste our time? And then you go over about investing because you talk about how people think that that the purpose of money is for investing or making more money. And you say the purpose of investing is to make money. You don't invest to lose money. And the best way to make a buck is to invest in companies that want to make the world better. These companies understand that long-term value is created when they improve the lives of everyone. And then you say, I'm here today to provide you with a framework and a mindset around money and investments that will allow you to focus on what matters, a life of growth and fulfillment for yourself, your family, and the world around you. So one, I just love that. And I love this distinction. And so I am just curious if before we get into the four levels of conscious wealth, because there's just a whole lot packed into this book, I'm just curious if you can share a little bit more about why this matters so much to you and why people should care, because they might hear conscious wealth and go, I don't have enough money, or I'm struggling or whatever. So I'm just curious if you can share why this matters so much. When we picked the title conscious wealth, I struggled with it a lot, because there are two polarizing words that's conscious and wealth. And they're polarizing because they're extremes and opposites, right? They're, they trigger people. And so that was a decision we had to make. Like, are we going to write and title a book something that somebody's going to automatically say, that's not for me because I don't have money or I don't have consciousness. And I do think that the book applies to most people, right? So the book, if you can't make ends meet, then a lot of this book is is probably not for you. Like that's a whole different issue that has other failings around it. And there are other books out there for it. But 
some of the people who exhibit the best practices I've seen around money and integrating money and being conscious with it have a lot less money than you'd imagine. And the ones who do it well just have a small nest egg and are finding a lot of satisfaction in their day-to-day life. And they're very generous on the philanthropic level. They're very impactful within their business. I wrote this book based on clients that I've worked with and they're exhibiting of what I now frame around conscious wealth. And some of my clients with the least amount of money exhibit it the best or navigate between these two polarities the best. Polarities being one, consciousness, outer-worldly, understanding that you are a spiritual being on earth, and then money being the most earthly thing we have. And, And like really that ability to navigate between these two extremes is one of our tasks in life. And I think any, everyone everyone can find value in that navigation. I agree. And one of the things that I kept being struck by as I read your book was I saw a lot of synergy with Lynn Twist and her soul of money. And I had her on as a podcast guest in my first season. And she just talks a lot about people who have very little of what we might typically think of as wealth that are like the wealthiest, richest people because they look at it from a different lens, which gets me into, you talk about these four levels of conscious wealth. And the first one is abundance. And you write this, you say conscious wealth is not about being like richy rich, quote unquote, rich people have everything and still obsess about dumb things like taxes. They are rich, but live in scarcity. You say wealthy people, on the other hand, are settled, grounded, count family as part of their wealth, don't like paying taxes, but understand it is their unwanted responsibility, are immensely grateful, don't see themselves as more or less wealthy than others, and find ways to use their money to help others. And then you talk about moving to this theory of abundance and saying that there is an abundance of love, friendship opportunities, resources, and wealth available to you right now. You just have to find a way to see yourself as worthy and then choose to move forward with confidence, believing that the universe will provide if you open yourself up to it. But how do people start to do that? Because this scarcity mindset is not just about money. It's about time. It's about there's not enough across the board. And so how do people start to feel like I have enough right now? So the question is, how does somebody create a sense of abundance? I can tell you how I did it. I think that's the easier way because I know that for sure. What happened to me was like an abundance I describe as a point where you let go, as you just mentioned, of fear of not having enough. So the the way that I found out that I had enough for me, and oftentimes it's getting to a point where you have too much. And then you're thinking like too much, like how could somebody have too much? But a lot of us have had these experiences in our life. And I know when I did, where I felt like I had climbed this mountain of financial success in the sense that I had the office, I had the job, I had all the other outside appearances of success. And I felt empty. I did not have my physical or emotional health as strong as I would have liked it to be. There was a lot of deterioration of it. And I felt alone. So oftentimes, more, it's more common in my case, I got to a point where I had too much and realized that I, w- I was putting the emphasis on the wrong thing. In my case, it came up as a case of a, a health scare. And we see that quite often where you start to see, well, oh, wait, 
that that's really what matters is my health or something happens within a family and you say, oh, that that's really what matters. And so oftentimes we get to abundance and getting to a point of feeling like there's enough when we realize we've had too much. And I think that's part of human nature. Even in some, for some people, COVID has been a big wake up call, right? Of just starting to shift your focus and priorities of what matters and what's important. And I also wonder if I take this from an individual to an organizational level, when you think about the bad rap that capitalism gets, it's because of the greed of wanting more and more and more. But are we really grateful for what we have and looking at how we can be abundant with what we have? So gratitude oftentimes comes in times of scare, but you mentioned COVID. And really, whenever this thing is, when you're looking for a reset, if it is COVID or if it is a health scare, what you're doing at that point is you're recalibrating and you're revisiting some of the beliefs that you had the beliefs that got you to where you are and, and you question them. So I think a lot about these, like in terms of money memories or memories that we have, or beliefs we have around money and they got us to a certain point. And during this recalibration stage, the way that you get to abundance is questioning those beliefs you have and seeing if they still serve you. And if they don't, finding a way to reframe them or discard them. I love that. And I, I'm glad you brought up the money memory. And there's such alignment with, I would say, work beyond how we frame, how we look at finances, how we look at wealth in the bigger picture. And that, you know, it was funny, as I was reading your book, I was thinking about, well, I never thought about what my money memory was. Like, what are the messages that I grew up around money memory? And how was it in my household? And when we were really strapped for cash, or we didn't have money here or there. And then I started thinking about the people that I know that maybe grew up without very much and how they've almost gone to the extreme now that that is not in a helpful way or some people who are very frugal now or just there's a whole lot of ways that it shapes us. And it, when you talk about rewriting that narrative, I think that's so important because not just with our money memory, but so much of what happened to us when we were growing up in those formative years, whether we want to admit it or not, whether we like it or not, it profoundly shaped us. And we create these meaning making systems. We create these narratives that we carry with us well into adulthood decades and decades later and sometimes we don't even stop to go, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that's a story I have. I just take it as that's reality. And then we don't go, well, is that story still serving me? And can I rewrite that story? And so I love your approach to that because not just around the money memory, but I think there's so many other areas that we can look at. Like, why do I have such a scarcity mindset around things, not just money, but about time or about relationship or about my value? And I think that we shy away from that inner work because it's messy and it's uncomfortable. Do you shy away from that inner work? I don't, but this is the work that I do every day. Like I, because I work with leaders, I work with people and it's, they haven't done the inner work and they might be in their sixties, they might be in their twenties and everything in between. But I just think that so many people haven't done the work and when they start to do it, it's hugely awakening. The work is everything and it's never ending. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Without this consciousness or without this understanding that we have enough, that there is abundance, you can't run a conscious business. It's impossible. If that work hasn't been done and the leaders don't believe that, I just don't know how it works. I think that's such a critical point, right? If, if the leader of an organization hasn't done that work and is operating from a scarcity mindset, how can you have a conscious business? So you say one other thing, speaking of the abundance that I just love, you said, if you have enough money, and yet you don't feel good enough, then you're not close enough. You're not close enough to your family, friends, coworkers, stakeholders, or even the security guard who greets you at the door each morning. 
which I think, again, is that shift, right, of how are we measuring wealth, but also what are we trying to fill? Like if I'm a business owner and my business is constantly operating from a scarcity mindset, how exhausting is that for your people? Or if they feel there's not enough jobs or not enough resources, how mentally and physically exhausting is it? Yeah, because it would be fear-based. And it's hard enough to do any type of work, but I guess doing work with fear would be <laughs> would be even harder. For sure. So level two of conscious wealth, you talk about purpose. And I just have to say what I appreciate is there's so much of you in this book and telling your story and your own humanity, which is just fantastic. So can you tell me more about how purpose fits into conscious wealth and what is something that individuals, but also businesses or business leaders can take away from the purpose as it relates to conscious wealth? I'd like to zoom out for, for a moment. Let's go back to the idea of money and how money can be transformed to build a lifestyle. And that's pretty easy. You just use a credit card, right? And like you can build that lifestyle and it's never ending. I, I kind of divided this idea of rich and wealthy and like you could be rich and just spend money and spend money and you have this lifestyle, but you're always going to want more because lifestyles can always go out and go further and further out. And so where the magic begins is for somehow, whether it's doing the work or some type of recalibration, you decide, well, I'm going to transform this money, not just into lifestyle, but I'm going to transform it into abundance. I'm going to transform this into a way that I feel free and a fear when I live my life and when I spend money. And that's the first thing. And that's really, I think, where you really start to move within this conscious wealth space. But if you have enough and you've already built a lifestyle that you're, you're okay with, and you've had enough to create this abundant lifestyle, and you still have more money, what do you do with it then, right? And so what you can do is then transform money into purpose. And, and when I talk about purpose, there's a lot of definitions. I joke that it's like the existential car keys that everybody's always looking for, like, what's my purpose? And people get anxious over purpose, which is kind of counterproductive. But I see purpose in the way that Thomas Merton spoke of it, and um, as he said, the tree gives glory to God by being a tree. And the idea that our highest level of expression of who we are or our purpose is just being who we are. My friend always tells me we're human beings, we're not human doings. And so as being, how can money help us be who we are? Or how can it help us heal from some of the destruction that occurred while well, we earned it? Because we know that every time you create something, something is destroyed. And while we oftentimes when we create financial success, we destroy our health, we destroy our relationship with ourselves, our family. That's why oftentimes we see a lot of disruption in families with financial means. So that's a long lead up to how can you transform money into purpose? How can you transform it to be a more authentic version of yourself? And I like to think of it as spending money that makes me feel alive, spending money that makes me feel alive and connected. And if I can do that, I'm working on this healing. So for instance, I've always wanted a sailboat and I looked at them for like two years online and I didn't get it. And part of the reason I didn't get it is I was I, I, I secretly or not so secretly thought like, oh, I can't spend that on myself. That's not, I, I don't deserve to spend that money on myself. And I was at my, my first bar mitzvah at my neighbor across the street and I'm looking around and there's Maury, an 80 year old guy in like his eighth spent Topa or Copa or whatever those things are called. I'm like, I'm going to go talk to that guy. So we start talking and I'm asking him like how he likes his life and what's retirement like. And he's like, well, what are you going to do in retirement? And I was like, well, I'm going to buy a boat. And he looked at me and he's like, 
well, why don't you just buy it now? And I'm like, yeah, like, that's a really good point. <laughs> that's a really good point. Like, why don't I buy it now? And like my first bar mitzvah, I walk away with a, a, a boat. <laughs> hey, <laughs> go to bar mitzvah, get a boat. Hey, whatever. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, like this boat it is an ongoing part of my healing process. It's a one person, high performance sailboat. I go out with my friends. We're balancing the forces of the wind, the water, everything. I feel alive. I pull it back up onto shore and we have public sandwiches, public turkey sandwich and a drink a beer or two on the lawn. And I feel like myself, like that is a proper use of, like that is a use of money to cultivate my purpose, to feel like me, as opposed to oftentimes I'm going to fancy restaurants and I feel kind of blah afterwards. I feel heavy. I feel tired. I've been sitting for three hours. I don't even remember what the third course was. And that's, this is completely different for me, right? It's all about what's for me. And so that's that's one way you can make that transforming money into purpose. I think that we can even bring this to a, a smaller level. So when my son, who he actually turns 11 tomorrow as we're recording this, but when he was three, we had his very first friend birthday party. And there's 20 kids. You have to invite the entire preschool class or it's horrible. So, you know, we have it at some little, (laughs) right? I mean, it's like, Jesus, right? I mean, it starts at that age. So here we have 20 kids coming and they all bring a present and then he's going to have family coming. And I'm just sitting here looking at this pile of gifts. They haven't even been opened. And I'm like, what the hell three-year-old needs this pile of stuff? Like this is absolute insanity. This is so ridiculous. And so we, I remember like he looked at me like I was insane. We put all of his presents in the middle of the living room and we had like a couch on either side. And I said, okay, his name's Peyton. I said, Peyton, pick one present. This is after he opened them, but pick one that you really want to keep. And you're going to go put it on this couch. And then you're going to pick one that you're going to give to a kid in need. And you're going to go put it on that couch. And he's like, well, why do I have to give my toys away? Am I bad? And I'm like, no, you're not bad, but there, this is more than you need. And there are kids who have nothing. And so he didn't quite understand when he was three, he was crying a little bit, but then he got into it. So then by the time he was four, he was five. He's like, do I have to sort my toys again? I'm like, yes, you do. But then he started to get into it. You talk about like a purpose and going, okay, if you think about a kid who has nothing and he's like, Ooh, they would love this. Ooh, they would. And he got such joy out of actually deciding which ones he was going to give away more than the ones he was going to keep. So someone listening may, oh, maybe I don't have money to go buy a boat or this or that. But you can think about what are we teaching our kids, right? And can we start to instill that purpose of what enoughness is and being grateful for what we have and sharing abundantly with others? Yeah, there are countless times that we spend money. And and it's thinking, is this making me feel alive? Is this giving me joy? And in the case of Peyton, what a great lesson. And every time we spend money, And the more that you're spending this money, for most of us, the more we have to work. And and so if, and not all of our jobs are life giving. So if we are punching it in as a shift worker, and then you go spend money on something that also doesn't make you feel alive, then, you know, it's, it's a, it's a pretty bad cycle. And then you got to work more to pay for the thing that didn't really bring you joy. And then you want, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so not everybody's blessed to be able to spend or to be able to work in a way that's totally life-giving. Like I'm very fortunate in that sense. And I understand that's that's a great blessing, but many of us have more control over what we spend than we know. Well, that gets us into that level three of conscious wealth. So we, level one was abundance, level two is purpose. And then you talk about level three is impact. So 
What's one of the best ways that people can think about their relationship with whatever amount of money they have and uh, resources they have to maximize their impact? There's a temptation to see money in two, two different ways. Either I hoard it or I give it all away, right? And that's a false binary solution or it's a false dichotomy. Like there are things in the middle of giving everything to charity and hoarding it. And when, when it's placed that way or when the scenario is depicted that way, then like by nature, most people are like, well, I'll hoard it. <laughs> Why wouldn't you? But the stop along the way is using money to create impact in others in your community. So it could be opening a, a running a conscious business or running a business and finding ways to make it more conscious, being intentional about how you're investing money and in companies or in the markets and assuring to whatever ability that you can, that it's lining up with your values because that money is doing something on your behalf. It's tough to run a small business, even more so right now, and not take care of your people. They'll walk, right? <laughs> and and your stakeholders, like I'm constantly telling my team, we got to be, all of our stakeholders have a choice to do business with someone else. Even just to our, like our marketing team has 20 people knocking on their door. And so how are we taking care of all of our stakeholders? And that's, and, and all business owners can do that. And I think that's a really strong way. I believe in philanthropy and philanthropy, and and we'll talk more about that on on level four, but I also believe in the ability to create positive impact through business models and through investing. And that's, this is one stop along that way. So that's probably is a good transition to go into the the final level, level four unity. Can you speak more about that? You know, when I look back at it, it's probably one of the more controversial things I write is that money can unite us and not divide us. And I think it's really interesting because that's not the tendency that's happening right now. In the early stages of conscious wealth, you're you're creating these affirmative statements, like I have enough, I am enough, right? And then as you start to get deeper into this, you start to really question some of those statements, like I am enough, but like, who am I? Like, am I really all that separate from anyone else? And like, I have enough, but then you sort of say, well, do I really have money or is it just, is it my money or is it my responsibility to be a custodian of this money? And there aren't a lot of easy answers to that, of course, but it's certainly where many of us are called to go. And I think it's where where life can begin. You start to think about so many different levels. Like for us, I mean, we're we're still a small business. We're thankfully growing, which is awesome. But even with that, it's like, ooh, can I really spend it on that? And it's like, yeah, but but this is actually furthering our purpose. This is actually giving somebody else meaningful and fulfilling work or whatever that might look like. And even from a philanthropy standpoint everything we do is how do we equip people to show up as a leader in their life? So we've made a very intention of, even if it's a small amount, if it's aligned with helping the next generation of leaders, helping kids in some capacity, helping to really nurture that. Like if we can do it, we will, if we can't, we won't, but it's being really clear about this feels good and it makes sense. So you're a business and you're investing in for social change and that's what philanthropy is. And you're oftentimes investing for social change in business in, in causes where business models don't really exist. There's not always a business model for for providing shelter for somebody who's homeless, right? And so you're just investing for social change, and it's absolutely needed. Capitalism will not solve all problems. I don't even need to say anything beyond that. Full stop, it won't. And so finding other models to do so. But this, when you start questioning, is this really my money? And I think that question comes from the fact that we know we're all going to die, right? And so when we're 
instead, we, we've also been told you can't take it with you. And so if it's not really ours in death, is it ours in life? And if it's not, then what are we doing with it? And, and that has profound implications, not just for philanthropy, but something that most people think about is what they're going to do with their assets when they're dead. And again, we see these polarities like, I'm going to give it all to my kids because it's a really tough world out there and I want to make sure they can do okay. And that's one side. And the other side is I'm going to give it all the charity because it's a really tough world out there and I want to make the world a better place for my kids. And along that spectrum are a lot of other options, not just in death, but in life. And thinking about those, and, and it's a lot easier to make, I don't know if it's a lot easier, but making those decisions with the viewpoint that this really isn't mine. It's just something I'm holding on to. And how am I going to be able to deploy it most appropriately? Because sometimes giving all your money to kids may not help them. It may not be in their best interest. We see that all the time. And other times giving it all to charity when they know it's coming and they're not prepared for the size of your grant and they don't have the structure available and you're no longer alive to help them manage that could also be detrimental. So those are some of the things we think about. When you think about money being an opportunity to unite us in in individual world, business world, et cetera, you also talk a lot about how we have to heal our relationship with money, whatever, whatever that is. So how do individuals or organizations begin to heal that relationship with money? Well, I guess the first part would be to understand what are those stories that they're telling themselves? What are the narratives, as you say? And then questioning, are they still valid? So I'll give you an example, put it into concrete terms. My second career and my current career is I I came up as an investment advisor, financial advisor. And the mantra coming up was always, make hay when the sun shines. Make hay when the sun shines. And a lot of business people say that. So like, hey, if there's an opportunity, take it. And I saw that in my father's business. He ran a a deli for a long time. And anytime a catering customer came in, no matter how inconvenient, he took it. And it's this belief that if you don't take it now, it might not show up again. And in my business and in my personal life, I, I try to avoid that now. I try not saying that. And I say, go have fun when the sun shines. <laughs> go outside and ride your bike sometimes. You don't like necessarily have to make hay today. There will be other opportunities. And so part of that is in your mindset. And then the other is like your activities, as I gave a very simple example for, is telling yourself, oh, well, Brandon, you don't need to worry about making money all the time is one thing. Actually going out and enjoying your life when there's opportunities to, to be working is actually proving to yourself that you don't need to. One of the things that I will say most of the leaders and executives that, that I coach and work with, we are regularly having conversations about healthy boundaries and about unplugging because whether they're billable hours or whether they're salaried or whatever, there's this mindset of whether it's control or whatever that narrative is of things are going to fall apart when I'm gone or I have to be on or I have to be responsive. And they have practically a panic attack at the thought of actually unplugging. And then they wonder why they're so stressed out and they're burnt out. And it's just this vicious cycle that is not sustainable. It's not sustainable. There is a message of fear in our society that you need to save up a ton of money right now because you're going to live forever. And we don't even know if that's true. Like clearly we don't know if that is true. And so we're saving up for this magical day that may not ever happen. And when we convince ourselves that we do, or when I convince myself that I do, 
I, I, I think I, that's my ego coming in. And my ego saying, no, Brandon, you're going to live forever. And I don't know if that's true. And everyone faces that dilemma when working with money. I need to save up for the future and I may die tomorrow. <laughs> and every decision is that. There's no answer to it. There's no answer. It's an unknown and it's an uncomfort. And so you can take that discomfort and work your tail off like some of those examples you were saying or surrender. Yeah. So one of the things that just struck me that I, I'm really appreciative of is while you know, your niche is obviously in conscious wealth and, and wealth management and helping people reframe their relationship and heal their relationship with money. As I think about your different levels of conscious wealth, they're very much synergistic with how we really look at how do we equip people to show up as leaders in their lives. The work that I do is really, okay, how do we look at how do we maximize our positive impact on the world by showing up as our best fully authentic self, which requires a lot of that inner work and supporting those around us to step into their greatness. And so you've talked a lot in your book and also in our conversation today about those stories we tell ourselves. So I want to transition more to you as a human and more to you as a leader then. I know that it's a common universal human experience that we all tell ourselves stories to keep us safe and small. No matter how much work we've done in ourselves, no matter how enlightened we are, our humanity still gets in our own way. So what I would love to hear from you, Brandon, is what is a self-limiting story that you still find yourself telling yourself? And when it shows up, how do you move beyond it so that you can still show up as a leader in your life? I would say that sometimes I question to what extent I am loved by the people around me. And I would say that when that comes up, I get closer to them. You lean into it. I love that. What is one impactful way that you are showing up as a leader these days, both in your personal life and your professional life? So my first career was as I was a teacher. I studied to be a teacher and um, not exactly immediately out of college, but I started teaching for seven years. And even then I, then I taught photography for a little bit and I opened up a photography studio. And now as I work in my field, I'm, we're constantly teaching. I'm teaching the people that are on my team and I don't hold anything back. I tell them all the secrets, so to speak. And it's very important. I want them to know everything I know and more. And I allow them to teach me. And then our practice is very much based on teaching. We're working with multi-generational families. And we are teaching every generation about what they have and, and what they can do with it and, and how to navigate this space. And that consulting service that we have or that consulting approach that we have is probably very similar to what you do. We just use money as a proxy for it, right? And the business is the family business. And I think if we, it's that abundant mindset, if we share and we teach others, we can grow the impact we can collectively have, right? Versus hoarding it for ourselves. I, I have no, no desire to do it all myself. None. Yeah. <laughs> Nor can you, right? I always say there's so much work to go around, which is why like, here, go use this stuff. Go have an impact. Thank you. So great. Yes. 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 Love yes. it. Thank you. So I like to have a quick question section to show the human side of my guests and have a little fun if you're up for it. Just kind Let's of fire the it. first thing. All right. Fill in the blank. Living authentically is? Being present as much as you can. <laughs> Can't always do that. Everything. Yep. When the world is presenting an opening, but you don't feel like showing up as a leader, what do you do? Take a nap. Something people would be surprised to know about you. 
I really like peanut butter ice cream before I go to bed, when I wake up, at lunchtime. <laughs> <laughs> peanut butter ice cream. I love it. I love it. <laughs> What's your favorite go-to movie? I mean, it'd have to be The Big Lebowski, I think. Yeah, that or Trading Places. Good choices. What's your go-to song? Uh, right now I'm listening to Exile by Bon Iver and uh, Taylor Swift, I think. That's a good one. I, I'm really liking that one, too. It's an addiction. I say this lightly because it doesn't have to be a thing, but what's something you can't live without? Water. Yeah, like, obviously, H2O, but water, like sea, ocean. What's something in your ordinary daily life that makes your heart happy? I have a really strong meditation practice that I learned um, in 2015, kind of like transcendental. It's a mantra-based meditation, and it's lovely. And the last but not least, what are you grateful for right now? I'm, uh, I'm grateful for you, Rosie. Thanks for this conversation. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm grateful for you. So we're not done yet. We got one closing question that I like to ask everybody. So with everything we've talked about and thinking about uh, just everything you do, if you could challenge leaders everywhere to practice this one behavior that would create more human workplaces and equip everyone to show up as a leader, what would that be? Well, you know, I would challenge myself, really, because this is something I need to do better at and it's something that you mentioned before. And I haven't been in the office in a long time, but I really need to do a better job at getting to know people outside of my immediate team. We have so many different types of um, partners or just people who co-share space with us who help in very transactional ways because it just happens when there's so much to get done. And I, my, my closest, I know well, but really getting to know about the lives of the people, maybe three degrees beyond, I think would be beneficial for me. I, I really do. And I love that because if you take that broader, every single one of us, if we make a point to get to know some more people, like truly get to know them and have them feel heard and seen as a human being, like, oh, wow, someone cares enough to get to know me. Like, that's huge. You just never know what's going on in people's lives. I mean, I sent this book out to my clients last week. We're releasing coming up soon. And none of them know a lot of that stuff about me. And they never would because it wouldn't come up. And because it's the, with them, it's a different type of relationship. I know a lot more about them because we're serving in a different way. But you just never know what anyone has gone through unless they've told you. True. So why not ask? Why not, why not genuinely care and be curious and find out? Yeah, I always find it astounding when I do. So that would be the thing I would challenge myself to do. And I would imagine other leaders would find value from that. I'm Rosie Ward, and this is Show Up as a Leader. To learn more, head over to peopleforwardnetwork.com. And of course, hit that follow button.